Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund, and I'm your host. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we are looking at what was once regarded as the greatest endurance challenge for an athlete, Swimming the English Channel. Our guest is Gavin Mortimer. His book is titled The Great Swim, and it's published by Walker Books. In our interview, Gavin and I talk about how his project for The Great Swim was rejected by several publishers for being just a swimming book. In fact, his book is anything but just about swimming. Gavin focuses on the attempts of four American women to swim the channel in the summer of 1926, but he puts their stories into a broader context, looking at women's changing roles in society at debates about the proper behavior and fashion for women, and at the influence of the popular media and the emergence of a celebrity culture that worshipped athletes as idols. The central character of Gavin's book is the 19-year-old American Gertrude Ederly, who not only became the first woman to cross the channel, but also broke the previous record set by a male swimmer by nearly two hours. But while Gertrude Ederly was an extraordinary swimmer, she was unprepared and unsuited for the media circus that surrounded her after her swim. And in the years immediately following, her life took a tragic turn, in part due to her inability to play the role of a celebrity. Gavin's book offers a vivid picture of the 1920s, the time of jazz music, flappers, and Jack Dempsey. It is, as he says in his interview, one of his favorite time periods to read and write about, as it is for me. And I really enjoyed speaking to Gavin about his book. So let's turn to the interview. Gavin, welcome to New Books on Sports. Taking, uh, thank you for taking time to join us today. A pleasure, Bruce. Uh, I want to start by asking about your background. You've written on a wide and interesting range of subjects, Antarctic Explorers, the Battle of Britain during the Second World War, aviation history, uh, most recently an English spy during the American Civil War. And I'll tell you, so, so I teach history at a, at a small college in the States, and I have a lot of students who would be envious of you as, as someone who travels the world, who uh, researches and writes books about such a wide variety of, of colorful topics. And to top it off, you get to live in Paris. So, so you have a nice line of work. How did you manage that? I do. Um, I started off, uh, I've always been interested in uh, writing. And in fact, when I was a, a student myself in my high school days, the, the two things that uh, I, w- I was only good at were uh, sports and English. And so in, in a way, I've been able to combine the two. I, um, uh, I, I came into writing in my mid-20s. And the, the themes, as you pointed out, Bruce, it, I, I write quite a diverse um, on quite a diverse range of topics. But I suppose the, the best way to sum it up is that what fascinates me um, are 
ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And in a book such as The Great Swim, uh, we've got someone right, um, Gertrude Edley. That's that's a wonderful story. And um, it's, I suppose it's just uh, quite not very well-known stories too. So it's so really uh, shining the spotlight on, on historical figures who, for one reason or another, have been overlooked. And uh, so perhaps just... Uh, Given them their moment in the spotlight, even though uh, most of them are long since dead. And so, as you said, so that this is a little-known story. How did you? What's the story behind the book? How did you find about uh, find out about Gertrude Ederly? Well, I'd always been vaguely aware of her, uh, Bruce, because I'm actually coming from uh, London, England, and I grew up in uh, so I grew up in the south of England. Obviously, the Channel mm-hmm. and the whole Channel swimming. Every sort of uh, British schoolboy and schoolgirl grows up knowing a vague bit about it and the history and that Matthew Webb in 1875 was the first person to swim the channel. And so I knew that Gertrude Edley had been the first woman. Uh, and it's quite a funny story how I, how I really came upon the whole uh, great swim of 1926 and the four American women because I was actually in the British Library researching another topic entirely. Funnily enough, the Battle of Little Bighorn and um, the participation of a uh, of a Scotsman in the in the battle. And I was looking up the 50th anniversary to see if I could find any mention of this man. So 50th anniversary, mm-hmm. 1876 to 1926. And alas, I couldn't find anything out about that man. But what I did find was this whole. Uh, epic Channel Swim story. And not just Gertrude Edley, but the three others, Clarabel Barrett, Neil Gage, and Lillian Cannon. And I thought to myself, wow, this is fascinating. And I've never heard anything about it. I've never heard of Clarabel Barrett or, or um, Lillian Cannon. And so that's really how what led me into it. Okay, so we're going to get to to your characters or your subjects in a second. But, but before we get started about uh, talking about Ederly and these other swimmers, I want to ask you about the the challenge of swimming swimming the English Channel. So, having grown up in in the south of England, and I know that you're a, a long distance swimmer yourself, uh, tell us what is the what is the difficult thing about swimming the Channel? Because it's not simply the distance, is it? No, not at all. It, it, it's really as a crow flies. It's only about nineteen miles from the shortest point, Dover to Calais. Mm-hmm. So it's not that great a distance. The two factors that defeat the vast majority of people who take on the challenge are, A, the temperature of the water. As uh, anyone who's ever been to uh, uh, England knows, it's not the warmest country in the world. And really, there's a very small um, window for swimming it, which is around about the end of June to the end of August. Um, when And even then, it's only about, ooh, if you're lucky, 18 degrees. So it's not warm. Now, the other thing is that uh, it's the tidal, uh, the, the, the tides, there's two tides, the ebb tide and the flood tide. They change approximately every six hours. So to swim the channel, you don't just get in the water and swim in a straight line, you zigzag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to uh, zigzag according to one, when the tides change. And if you get that wrong, then you're going to be pushed further out to sea because it's you know, it's two small promontories, really, and uh, the landing, particularly if you're going from England to France, um, it, there's not much to play with. And if you get it wrong and you're pushed past uh, uh, past the land, out further out to sea, then you know, you're going to head up somewhere in the uh, somewhere. Well, I don't know where Spain, probably. <laughs> so uh, 
it's it's pretty tough. So that so it's the distance isn't isn't a factor. It's the temperature and the tides. And have you made a long swim personally in the channel? No, no, I have been in the channel on my um, vacation, but really you don't want to dawdle too long in the channel unless you have to. And uh, and and as I talk about in the book, anyone who swims a channel. We have about four layers of grease. In the old days, it used to be sheep fat, and uh, because uh, because you're not allowed to use any sort of um, uh, wetsuits. And uh, as I said, it's, it's very cold. So no, it's uh, there are better places to swim in the world, Bruce, than the channel. Uh-huh. And and you didn't talk about sea creatures because sea creatures do fit in uh, with a couple of the unsuccessful attempts. They do absolutely. Nowadays, it's one of the uh, the channel is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. But back in the uh, nearly 100 years ago, it wasn't ships that were the problem. There, there were a lot. I mean, you still get these huge basking sharks, which are very harmless, but they're about, oh, you know, anything from about five metres uh, to eight, nine metres long. And they just um, cruise along and, uh, and uh, with their mouths open and swallowing little fish. But uh, you know, they're pretty scary, if you, particularly if you're fatigued and you see, you know, a fin in the water. And... Um, and there's jellyfish. There's also there's uh, hundreds of jellyfish. Now I have been stung by one of the uh, jellyfish in one of the few times that I have been in the channel, and and they're pretty vicious. This thing. And um, so yeah, no sea, sea creatures are another uh, uh, obstacle, if you like, to swim in the channel. So by the the summer of 1926, the the year that the book focuses on, there had only been a handful of of successful successful crossings up to that point. Could you tell us about uh, tell us about those, please? That's right. There'd only been uh, I think five men had had only had swum the channel, and uh, no no female had managed to swim the channel. Several had had tried. The first being an Austrian woman in around about I think 1900, um, but uh, uh, the the second man to swim the channel was actually uh, Gertrude Edley's trainer, Bill Barrett, mm-hmm. uh, a Yorkshireman who lived in, like me, lived in Paris. Um, but he he did it only at uh, I think his uh, after after many unsuccessful attempts. And one man who again features in the Great Swim, Jabez Wolf, had tried on twenty two occasions to swim the channel. And uh, I mean, there are again a, a, something that I found fascinating. That many people who tried to swim, and this guy Jabez Wolf, on one occasion got to within three hundred yards wow. of touching down. And but, but as I said, the tide suddenly changed. And if you've been in the water for fifteen hours, you're really you're you're at the very limits of your exhaustion, and the tide changes. It shatters you. It destroys you mentally, psychologically. And and he gave up. And he wasn't the only one. Many people have have failed within almost within touching distance of of uh, of their goal of the goal. So. It's um, it really was in those days one of the obviously um, in in nineteen twenty six uh, when when the great swim is is set no one had climbed Everest and um, the it was if you like the the holy grail of physical achievements and uh, you know the Olympics was beginning to take off but the the, the channel in, in what was a romantic age of, of exploration and. Uh, the North Pole and the South Pole had only been reached a generation before. The, the channel was, uh, people could see it. It was there. So there was a certain cachet to it, if you like. Mm-hmm. So in the summer of, of 1926, it seemed in reading your book that that the channel was was crowded with swimmers who were training and, and preparing to, 
to make the swim and they're bumping into each other at the hotel on the on the French side. So how many how many swimmers, male and female, were there that that summer? And you talk about this this small window uh, that they had to work with. And so it seemed like daily uh, new people were going in the water. That's right. There were well, there were six women, four Americans, an English woman and a French woman. Uh, then there were about uh, or at least uh, another six men, a couple of Germans, a couple of Eng- uh, a couple of English, oh, and, and the wonderful uh, Isaac Helmy, an Egyptian who would uh, a very wealthy Egyptian who would turn up every year in the hope of uh, of swimming the channel, but he, he was m- there more for the party than, than the actual <laughs> swimming. Um, but um, so yes, it was. You say it was a lot of people there. Most of them gathered on the French side, um, and the uh, there was a great rivalry, particularly among the Americans, uh, and something that surprised me when I was researching the book was just the, the level of hostility, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, between the swimmers, because there was a lot of, at stake. We may think of the 1920s as being a sport back then. It was all amateur, and it was, uh, there wasn't the competitiveness and uh, that sort of uh, ruthless professionalism that there is today, but, but not at all. There was they knew that riches would be would go to the, the woman who was the first to succeed. So there was a lot at stake. So yeah, let's let's talk about the women. And, and as you said, the book focuses on the women uh, trying to make the crossing, and in particular, you focus on the four American women. Could you give us a, just a, a brief sketch of, of those four subjects? Sure. Starting with Gertrude Edley, she had first tried to swim the Channel in 1925 and had failed after nine hours in the water when she was about halfway across really because i mean at the time she was or she was 18 in when she first attempted the, the channel in 1925 she'd won um, a bronze medal individual medal and a team gold at the 24 um olympics and she was probably the best swimmer in the world the sprint swimmer um and i think you know with the it was rather the arrogance of youth, if I can put it that way. In 1925, she thought uh, the channel was was fairly easy. It was, as I said, it was just sort of misguidedly thinking you just swam from A to B and that was it. And she started out very strongly and then just blew up really halfway across and, and was taken out. Um, she, she came back in, in 1926, sponsored by um, Patterson, uh, C- Captain Patterson, who was one of the uh, owner of a Chicago Tribune and and, uh, and one of the one of the wealthy newspaper magnates of the day. Then you had Lillian Cannon, who was a very, um, uh, as you, uh, I suppose you will say now, a now a blonde bombshell uh, from from Baltimore, sponsored sponsored by the Scripps Howard newspaper organization. Uh, she she held the record for the fastest swim across Chesapeake Bay. And was I think twenty three, and really sort of the old American, if you like. Gertrude Edley was born in New York, but her family was uh, uh, was from Germany. Had immigrated to uh, uh, the U.S. at the end of the of the nineteenth century. Uh, Lillian Cannon was the was the old American, blue eyed blonde. Then you had Clara Bell Barrett, who was about uh, two hundred pounds, six foot two, um, and. Uh, you know, to, to be blunt, from a from a, a newspaper's perspective, she couldn't get any sponsorship because she just didn't look good in a bathing suit. You know, just make no bones about it. That was how it, it went in those days. Because an interesting point to make, Bruce, is that uh, and one of the reasons why uh, the female channel swimming, female swimming in particular, was was uh, so popular this time 
was because it was a the old adage set cells. It was one about the only way where newspaper editors could print photos of of women, uh, women's legs. Um, and so you had these gratuitous photos in, in all the newspapers of the day of, of these uh, young uh, female swimmers in their bathing costumes. And, uh, and, and, uh, I'll throw, and I'll throw in, and in the book you have several reproductions of, uh, of, the, of the sports pages, of the newspaper pages. And so it wasn't simply a, a single photo. You would have these montages across the, the width <laughs> of the paper with all of these photos in different poses of the women in their swimming suits. Absolutely, yes. No, it was shameless exploitation. Um, and um, and then they, so you had Clarabelle Barrett, who who was uh, a good swimmer. She was a swimming instructor at a at a, a school in, in in New York. She lived just outside uh, New Rochelle, uh, just outside uh, New York City. Um, and then you had uh, Mill, uh, well, Mill Gate, who was um, uh, of Danish origin, but had married, come to the U.S. just after the First World War, I think in 1919, married a U.S. naval officer, Clementon uh, Corson, and uh, she had first tried to swim the channel in 1923, uh, had failed. But she was the, uh, interestingly, she was the, um, I suppose if you like, the, she was championed by uh, the American mothers. So she was a little bit, she was in her late 20s, uh, had two young children, and, and she, she was popular uh, with, with um, as, because another point, uh, Bruce, to make is that this was obviously the flapper, the jazz age, the flapper generation. Lillian Cannon and Gertrude Edley wore their hair in bobs. They liked to dance. Uh, they rouged. Which was shocking to uh, uh, you know the an older generation of, of American women. M- Milgade was much more conservative, wore her hair long, dressed more sensibly, and had two children. So she was, I suppose, the conservative America's favorite. So you had really four different personalities, which again was was uh, all added to the sense of rivalry, if you like. They all represented something different, and uh, uh, and. Uh, they were all from the East Coast, but uh, from, from New York City, from Baltimore, and, uh, and from just uh, from sort of upstate New York. And you mentioned earlier the rivalries between these women, and the, and the principal rivalry, at least at first, is between Edderly and, and Cannon. And, and why was, could you explain why this was such a rivalry? Well, they were both sponsored by um, rival newspapers. Uh, the, the New York Daily News sponsored uh, Gertrude Edderly and the uh, Baltimore Post, part of the Scripps Howard um, uh, organization, sponsored um, a Canon. They were both the young ones, as I said, the you know the the, the young, hip, trendy flappers, um, and and they were um, they didn't they didn't like each other either. There was a certain amount of envy, I think, um, and it was it was also built on by the by the rival newspapers who wanted. You know, this was an era when. Um, in comparison today, there were just uh, hundreds and hundreds of newspapers in the U.S. So it was a it was a really cutthroat industry, and uh, and they wanted to shift copies. And so, as, as you alluded to earlier, these uh, gratuitous photos of the of the of the women in their bathing suits, and um, and so um, this was used by the newspapers. And so I think it just you know the women got swept up, if you like, in the in the whole uh, the newspaper war. And I want to ask about that because uh, 
you have a large supporting cast in the book with with coaches and trainers and relatives of the swimmers. But then there are also these these newspaper editors, writers, publishers who had sponsorship deals, who had then if if a swimmer was successful, had an exclusive access contract with the swimmers. So and it appeared as I was reading it that this this entire race across the channel uh, was not so much about the 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 athletes or the attempt at at, uh, a great athletic feat, but it was really a a media event. It was a major event. And uh, as I make clear uh, in the book, that um, Edley in particular, but to to an extent, with the exception, actually, with the exception of Mill Gade, who wasn't exploited by the newspapers, mainly because her husband, who was, as I said, a a naval officer, really, uh, from the sounds of things, a pretty formidable character, as Mill Gade was in her own right, but you know, these two were not going to be messed around. And um, whereas Lillian Cannon and, and Gertrude Edley, Gertrude Edley in particular, you know, we, we've, you've got to remember she's only 19 at the time. Her father, I have to say, doesn't really come across as a particularly um, supportive, caring father. He was out, he owned a butcher's shop in Amsterdam Avenue in New York. He was clearly, you know, he saw that uh, if his daughter swam the channel, he could do out pretty well out of it himself. So he even exploited it to a degree. But um, no, they, um, it was a media circus. And, uh, and in the end, it ended up with Gertrude Edley being uh, badly exploited to the point where she had a nervous breakdown. Now, I'm not going to ask you about the attempts of each of these women to swim across the channel. And, and I know that you want to re- have people read the book. And, and I'll tell listeners that the chapters in which you describe the, the various attempts by these women to swim across the channel, particularly the swim by, by Clarabelle Barrett, make for truly gripping page-turning reading. I, I, was, I, was, uh, I really enjoyed those chapters where you describe the, the attempts by these women to get, get across the channel. But I do want to ask you about Etterly's attempts, since we do know that she did succeed, and she did it in record time in getting across the channel. But uh, her swim was not without difficulty, correct? Uh, absolutely correct. No, it was um, it was a very uh, difficult swim. In uh, and the channel is the, the weather changes can change so quickly in the channel, um, and the um, because obviously you've got the North Sea to the uh, to the east and the Atlantic to the west, and you know the the um, weather patterns in both those. Uh, um, oceans can uh, can change very quickly and so and it just shoots up the channel um and so edley started at seven o'clock on august 6th 1926 blue sky still winds quite a reasonable temperature and uh within about seven hours around about early afternoon suddenly the uh the heavy thick clouds rolled in the sea got up and uh she was battling pretty ferocious waves and uh, and was being um, shunted from side to side and bruised. And as I think, um, as uh, as I as I say, she at the end of it, she her face resembled a um, a heavyweight boxer's face because she she just got such a battering from the sea, and um, her her lips were um, swollen, her face bruised, her tongue lacerated with the salt, and. Uh, and she was in a she was in a hell of a mess. So so she she was she was battling um, not just herself and uh, uh, but also the, the weather, which which was doing its utmost to try and defeat her. 
so she she makes it across. It's a it's a grueling ordeal, um, and, but she surpasses the record that had been set by by a man. She she shatters it, Bruce. Doesn't just surpasses it. She shatters it by uh, she swims it in about fourteen and a half hours, which is uh, uh, well over, an, I think, an hour and a half quicker than the previous best by a, a man. So she's not only the first woman to swim the channel, she's she's the fastest person ever to swim the channel by a, by a huge margin of more than an hour. So it's it's an extraordinary feat in in these very trying weather conditions, and uh, just it's it's an extraordinary achievement, and um, and one that uh, is uh, I think testament to her spirit. There's a there's a point where they have to change course quite near the end when she's been in the water for about 12 hours because the weather's so, the wind's so strong, it's going to push her um, actually past the, uh, her, her um, original landing points into the North Sea towards Holland, towards Germany. And um, so uh, it, was, it was an extraordinary achievement and, uh, and one that uh, really did become headline news around the world. And and one story I knew about her before uh, before reading her book is that at, at a point her trainer wanted her to get out of the water. Correct. That's right. Her trainer, um, Bill Burgess, who I said earlier was the uh, second man, the Englishman, the second man to to swim the channel. At one point, he um, he he ordered her out of the water because he was fearful that she was going to drown because she was in 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 such a uh, a bad way. And there's no doubt too. I mean, I think the other thing one's also got always has got to remember, Bruce, about uh, these swims in 1926. There was none of this nutrition that we know today about carb loading, etc. I mean, for example, she was she was swimming. She she had pineapple, uh, which isn't too bad, but she was eating a lot of chocolate. Um, obviously, no energy drinks, just drinking water when she could. Hot beef soup um, and. Uh, uh, and that was it, really. So, um, so there were no, you know, obviously she was, she was, um, so having peaks and troughs, as any endurance athlete will tell you, when you, uh, when you begin to deplete your energy stores, that's, you know, that's when the hardest. Um, and so her trainer, Bill Burgess, ordered her out of the water at one stage, and, and um, to which he replied, uh, oh, "What for?" and refused to, uh, refused to come out of the water and just carried on and. Uh, she, she was an interesting personality, definitely, because on the one hand, she was very naive and uh, and uh, probably not that intelligent, not very worldly wise. But she had this formidable self-will that I think she got to a point in that swim where she she was drawing on reserves she didn't know she had. Um, and and uh, that's what enabled her to keep going when I think most of us would have just quit. And so you say in the book that uh, by the time she she fell asleep in England uh, in her hotel bed, she was already a uh, celebrity back in the states. the The news uh, was hitting the newspapers that she had had made the swim, had set a a new record for for women and for men. And uh, so now she's a celebrity. And and what were the demands that were put on her, and how did she handle them? Well, the, the, the demands were huge, and. One of the reasons she was became such a celebrity was that she. It was obviously the nineteen twenties was a time of of great female emancipation in, in all walks of life, and uh, you had these range of um, Hollywood stars, for example, and uh, who were really um, for the first time, um, you know, women were being able, were able to go out and work 
and, uh, and earn their own wage. But they're also making lifestyle choices that their mothers would never have been able to make. So that's, I think, that helped create this, this great uh, celebrity for, for Edelie. And, and so the demands were, um, at first, she, was, uh, she had a manager in place and um, she was offers of, of, of to, to sponsor everything from chewing gum to toothpaste to, obviously, to swimwear came in. There were demands for Hollywood uh, wanted her, um, and uh, uh, she she could have gone back to the US and uh, um, um, been a, a, a multimillionaire probably within the month. Instead, she chose to go to Germany and visit her grandmother, which was a mistake uh, because it's uh, I think it probably diminished her somewhat in the eyes of Americans who. Who cons- she was an American, but at the same time, they wanted her to, to come back to America, not to go to Germany to visit uh, to visit some uh, some relatives she hadn't seen for for a long time. So I think she she probably missed an opportunity to to take control of her destiny herself. And and it was another month before she returned to the U.S. By which time, um, people were. F- fighting over her as if she was really just a piece of meat and it it was very unseemly and, and, and ultimately it, uh, it 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 damaged her considerably yeah and it, and it seemed to me that she was just not she was a swimmer but was just not able to uh to handle that attention because even when she goes to germany and she goes to her uh to her grandmother's village you describe how uh the mayor and all these people were wanting to come see her, and, and she really retreated. You even described the scene how she goes into the barn and she's she's with one of the cows while all these people are are clamoring to see her. And uh, and then when she does get to the states, she uh, she has, as you say, an emotional breakdown because of all the attention. Absolutely, I think there's a case, Bruce, for saying that Gertrude Edley was one of the first celebrities, global celebrities of the 20th century, because it was a time, obviously, we talked about the photography, the, uh, the photographs and the fact that, uh, you know, people were seeing what she looked like. They were following it. She wrote a daily column for uh, New York Daily News. So people were really, it was, it was a soap opera. But also there was um, uh, uh, silent film footage of her, uh, which is played in cinemas back in the US. And so, and so people... Uh, you know, people thought that they, she was almost public property. And obviously, yes, of course, you had, uh, you know, you had these uh, Louise Brooks and these big film stars, Douglas Fairbanks, but they were, you know, like actors today, they were very much, they were comfortable with being in, in the spotlight. You say, you just said, um, quite right to say that Edley was a swimmer. She wasn't a celebrity. Yet she was turned into a celebrity and she was 19 years old. She just didn't know how to handle it. And uh, to the point, that's right, I mean, in Germany, she was, she thought she was going to visit her grandmother, but the German newspapers um, followed her everywhere. And, and uh, really, she became a prisoner in her, in her grandmother's home. And, uh, and, and it just, the cumulative effect of all this media, intrusive media, um, uh, which intrusive media spotlight became too much for her. And, and when she got back to New York, um, and a million people turned up, a million people plus turned up in New York City to a ticket tape parade. It, you know, it, it just um, it became too much for it to bear. Yeah. So you've already hinted at it, but I was going to ask about that later, about this. Uh, uh, as you were writing, uh, what parallels did you see between, between this story 
and our our current celebrity saturated or celebrity worshiping popular culture. It surprised me to see that even you know a hundred years ago, uh, really there was a uh, this demand for celebrities that uh, in some ways we taking say Britain as an example, the, the British royal family were the celebrities of the nineteenth century. Um, and then with the advent of, um, uh, you know, I suppose, the newspapers, the photography and the cinema, it moved away into, uh, and, and Hollywood, obviously. Um, and so it, it created new celebrities in film stars and sports stars. And that's, uh, the, the need has always been there to worship people. It's not something new. We think today of the celebrity culture, um, in, in fact, today I think it's the difference is that we, we celebrities today, perhaps you might say, are, uh, are celebrities for having, despite the fact they've got no discernible talent. <laughs> At least Gertrude Eddley had a huge talent, um, and um, but the people have always wanted to 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 admire, to worship, uh, to put people on a pedestal, if you like. And 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 as I said uh, uh, just just now that. Edley was one of the first examples of that, and and it, and it followed with, uh, you know, obviously in that same era you had Babe Ruth, and and then um, as I said, uh, as I as I mentioned in the book, a year later, you got Charles Lindbergh flying across the Atlantic, and he replaces Edley, if you like, and in a way it takes the heat of her because uh, he's suddenly the new, new glamour boy, and he was slightly more comfortable with being in the spotlight than Edley. But but no, I think that I think there are many parallels to be drawn between between the celebrity culture today and that of 100 years ago, and, and that uh, our ancestors were perhaps just as, uh, uh, just as in, in demand for celebrities as we are. So something I want to ask about with that, since you, I know you did research in both British newspapers and American newspapers, uh, how much overlap across the Atlantic did you see in this, uh, in this celebrity culture at the time? So, so you did mention Babe Ruth. You talk in the book about Jack Dempsey. Uh, I'm not thinking that Babe Ruth would have featured in in newspapers in Britain. Likewise, someone like Dixie Dean would not have been in in newspapers in in the States. But how much overlap uh, did you see in this this emerging uh, celebrity culture, which which featured athletes? There was a big overlap, I think. Um, as you say, not not really with Babe Ruth or or say for a, an England cricketer in the US, but. But John, Johnny Weissmuller obviously was a huge star both sides of the Atlantic and uh, and Jack Dempsey and and, and Gertrude, Edley, Gertrude Edley. So there was a uh, there was an overlap. Something else that I, I'd heard um, refer to in the book, um, Bruce, is that the uh, the British weren't very happy that an American woman, um, um, you know, sort of an upstart colonial, if I can put it like that, mm-hmm. had. had had the temerity to come to Europe and become the first woman to swim the channel. So there was actually, a, in not, I have to say, not in all UK newspapers, but one or two UK newspapers wondered if perhaps she hadn't, um, uh, there, was, there was, for example, a whispering campaign that she had used her support boats, she'd used two support boats um, to shelter her from the wind. And so she'd swum the channel, you know, in, in a way that really wasn't, uh, Jolly well wasn't fair and not the sort of thing that a, a good upstanding British woman would do, which is absolute nonsense, as as um, you know, more than one British channel expert was willing to testify to. But there was a certain jealousy, uh, which I think was 
uh, also as a result of Britain at that point was was on its uh, was was declining, and it, and America was really becoming the global superpower. Britain knew this, and Britain a lot of British people weren't happy with it, and uh, and um, but but by and large the British people, I mean there were four thousand people uh, were there stayed up late at night to welcome Guilford of Italy to to the uh, to England when she when she uh, scrambled ashore just just um, east of Dover. So by and large, the British were um, the British people were were wonderfully supportive of uh, Gertrude Edel. But this was something that surprised me in the book in terms of looking at this as the origins of, of celebrity culture and, and athletes within celebrity culture, and, and something you see today is that uh, uh, almost immediately after she makes this this tremendous feat, uh, she's being criticized for it, and and you talk about how some of it arises from. Uh, a bit of British jealousy of this American coming over and, and swimming the channel. But then after she returns to the States, this uh, criticism continues, especially when after uh, Millie Gade successfully swims swims the channel. Can you talk about this uh, this criticism of Edderly and uh, and what were the origins of it? Well, I think she was, she was criticized um, because she, uh, I mean, there was, yeah. she, when she swam the channel, as I said, she was sponsored by the New York Daily News. And the, uh, in fact, her, she had a chaperone when she was in France, um, Julia Hartman, who was uh, married to Westbrook Pegler, who was the big, uh, suppose, you know, this big sports columnist of, of, the, uh, of the time and went on to win a, a Pulitzer Prize uh, just uh, uh, in, the late, in the late, early 1940s, I believe. And, um, and uh, so you know, it was their story, their scoop. And once Gertrude uh, Edley had swum the channel, it was staying a, a New York Daily News story, and they weren't. Going, she wasn't going to speak to any other American newspaper. And this obviously caused uh, a lot of resentment in um, uh, in other newspapers, and so um, that uh, that led to um, uh, uh, criticism of her and uh, and of of, of her. Um, swim attempt. I suppose picking up on the British theme that she'd uh, that she'd swum it um, in the um, uh, using um, using her support boats as uh, as shelter from the wind, which was which was uh, nonsense as I said earlier. But, but there was a um, uh, she Gertrude Edley um, was socially very awkward, partly because she was already beginning to go deaf. Uh, she had measles as a child, and I think also a contributing factor was this constant swimming training um, affected her hearing. And so she was self-conscious and uh, socially, and so she didn't handle the press well. And when she, when she began to give a, um, uh, a, a tour and a speaking engagement, touring the states from, from east to west coast, north to south, she, she didn't, uh, A, she didn't know it was a very tiring schedule, but she also didn't. Uh, she didn't really establish a rapport with other American journalists um, because she felt she couldn't hear what they were saying, and and uh, and they they began to write some um, rather derogatory articles about her. And uh, again, I think that uh, she was a very sensitive woman. Uh, contributed to her to her nervous breakdown. So, so the Channel swim or the race was uh, in large part a. a media-inspired event, and then as we see with today's celebrity culture, you have uh, someone who uh, 
the press doesn't like her for one reason or another, and they begin to um, they begin to kind of bring down her accomplishment. That's right. That's right. They um, it, it, it was uh, um, the a media circus in France and a, a media circus back in the in the states. And in fact, Julia Hartman, who was her chaperone, as I said, because it's she was over in in uh, France in a very small village in uh, Cape Grenet, um, which is a very isolated, very rural part of uh, northern France. And so she was there for um, best part of 10 weeks uh, and not much to do. There was one, uh, two hotels, uh, no no nightlife to speak of for, for an, uh, uh, a 19-year-old uh, young woman. And, uh, and and so she got to have really a, a very looked on Julia Hartman as, as her um, almost like an aunt, if you like. And the moment that they returned to New York, the New York Daily News um, got rid of, uh, 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 sort of pushed Julia Hartman out of the limelight. And uh, and so she lost that stabilizing influence, mm-hmm. if you like. And I think that was another factor, that she was someone who she could trust. There weren't many people, I think, that Gershwin really trusted. I'm not sure she even trusted her father that much. And I think increasingly she found herself surrounded by people you know, I suppose today is an example. You, well, you could use a lot of big name sports stars, particularly in the perhaps boxing. They're surrounded by a team of advisors who, <laughs> one might say, haven't got their best interests yeah. at heart. And I think that became the case of Gertrude Edley when she returned to the States. So I want to back up from Edderley for a bit. And uh, there's a great line in your acknowledgments section about how Several publishers rejected this project because, and I'll quote uh, your line, because it's just a book about swimming. And, <laughs> and I'll be the one to, to say it. I know you probably don't want to burn your bridges, but those publishers were really dumb. And, yeah. and, I, and I say this because this book, you, re, you really do a masterful job of placing the swimming within... Uh, several overlapping historical contexts, and and you really fit this this event nicely within the culture of the 1920s. And one of these contexts that I'd like to ask you about, and you hinted at it earlier, is how this race among among female swimmers connects to the changes at the time in in women's place in society, both in the United States and in in Europe. And so when Ederly completed the crossing, how was this viewed as uh, this great accomplishment surpassing the best time by a man as a great accomplishment by a woman? I just, that can't be overstated enough, Bruce, that it was a huge accomplishment as it was um, uh, it, uh, tens of thousands. The, there was, a, I think it was the Red Cross swimming certificate, life-saving certificate that, um, that in that time was, uh, uh, was I suppose, the, the most prestigious swimming certificate one could have. Tens of thousands of American women signed up to, to get that uh, certificate in the light of uh, following Edley's success. Um, and it, don't forget, only uh, less than 10 years before uh, Edley had swum the, the channel, women in America, it was still an offence to show a bare leg on a beach. Yeah, this is quite extraordinary. But there was a, I mean, there was a famous uh, American uh, swimmer, who I think competed in the Olympics, who was uh, arrested in in, um, in a beach in uh, New York for daring to reveal a uh, uh, take to the beach in a swimsuit that didn't cover her from her ankles to her neck. 
And um, and so um, it was at a time when, and I mean, that was actually thrown out by the judge and it was taken to court. Um, and and so that was uh, a big blow for, for women swimming. But the fact that Edley had, had um, swum the channel faster than any other man, I think was proof that this whole um, nonsense about the, the weaker sex, that uh, in fact, far from being the weaker sex, <laughs> here she was, a woman was uh, certainly when it came to channel swimming, was the stronger sex. And it just gave so much self-confidence to women who were um, on both sides of the Atlantic, in the, in the UK and the US, uh, at, the, you know, at the end of the First World War, during the First World War, 1916, 17, 18, when the men had been off fighting, uh, women had taken jobs that hitherto had been forbidden to them, whether it was being um, uh, bus conductors, working on the subways, etc., uh, delivering the mail, uh, and then uh, it had given them a taste of, of emancipation. And uh, I think that it was gathering momentum, gathering momentum, and with Edley's swim, it was just further proof that really there were no limits to what women could achieve. So what, what ultimately became of Gertrude Edderly? Very sad story. She, um, so she had a nervous breakdown in um, the fall of 1926. Uh, she, over the next two or three years, her hearing uh, deteriorated to the point where she was more, uh, she was deaf. Uh, she was engaged um, for a short while and then her fiancé, uh, abandoned her because he didn't want to spend the rest of his life with a deaf woman. As I said, she was a very sensitive woman. That that really did break her heart. And uh, she um, she uh, never again swam competitively. She got a job working in a uh, in, there was a, a Hollywood made a film of about her where she starred with uh, BB Daniels in nineteen twenty seven but with her hearing getting worse. And then in, um, and then in 19, the early 1930s, she was visiting a friend when she, uh, and leaving the apartment, she slipped on the stairs and fell down a flight of stairs and um, broke her back and spent really the next year in a plaster cast. So if you can imagine for a woman who had swum the channel for one of the great athletes of her time, she spent a year lying in bed in a plaster cast, plaster cast. And, uh, and she never quite really recovered physically from that. And in the 1939 New York World Fair, she swam um, the highlights. One of the highlights was Gertrude Edley back in the swimming pool, back in swimming for the first time since her great channel swim. And she swam a length of a 50-metre uh, pool. And that was uh, greeted with thunderous applause. So you could see uh, that in the space of 13 years, that's what her life had, uh, had really um, come to. And... Um, and then she, um, after the war, she never she never married. She lived with in a queen's apartment with uh, three other friends, and uh, and yet and, and yet she did find um, some 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 great I think fulfilment in that she she became a swimming instructor to deaf children in uh, in, in, uh, in New York schools. I think that gave her great pleasure because she felt, as we said earlier, she was she always felt socially awkward and. Uh, and yet with these deaf children, she was, A, she was back in the water, and B, she was with people she understood and she could relate to. And I think so she did feel in the end some, some great um, fulfilment. And she lived to be a, she lived to a ripe old age. She, she died in November 
2003, aged 97, and um, uh, and her death was was reported around the world. She was back in the spotlight nearly three quarters of a century after dominating the the world's newspapers for a month or so. She was back in the spotlight, and uh, and, um, and and so it was it was a, a life, if you like, that in a sense reached its pinnacle. If you're talking in the media sense, reached its pinnacle. And she was 19 years old, but it was a long life. And I think she, she derived, there was great heartbreak, but also a, a degree of happiness in the end, too. Yeah, in reading it, the, the, the years immediately following her swim and her nervous breakdown and the, in the accident, it is, as you said, it's a tragic story. But uh, you do end it with this note that, that she had uh, gained some peace and contentment and, and was rightfully proud of what she, what she accomplished. That's right. She she was um, we said earlier she was a swimmer, not a celebrity, and and she she achieved one of the great sporting accomplishments, uh, uh, really to, to 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 become the first woman to swim a channel in the in the what was then the fastest time ever, uh, age nineteen years old was was a, a wonderful achievement, and of course it's it's for that she it's what she's famous for. Yet she did have a. Um, she she came back from this great depths of, of, of great misery and overcame so so much heartbreak. And I think that showed the the strength of the woman. We we talked earlier that she she showed great strength, um, great willpower in swimming the channel. She also showed it in, in overcoming um, much unhappiness in her life. So I want to ask a, a larger question. Earlier, you talked about. Uh... Uh, her swim as part of this this lo- larger period of a as you called it a romantic age of of exploration and and as I said you've done work on uh, early aviators you've done work on uh, Antarctic explorers you've done work on and with this book on uh, great athletic feats and uh, so so that's an interesting uh, way to put it is viewing this this attempt to swim across the channel as part of this larger period of of exploration and human accomplishment. And, but my question is, as I remember as a kid and, and perhaps you do too, is uh, I remember coverage in magazines and on TV of, of, of channel swims. I remember seeing the images of people greased up from head to toe. They look like, they look like space aliens as they were heading into the water. And I remember coverage of polar expeditions uh, and coverage of, of Everest climbs, but you don't get coverage of those anymore. You know, the, the, those uh, accomplishments are now now commonplace. And uh, I want to ask you why you think that is. Well, I think I, I mentioned earlier, Bruce, Charles Lindbergh, who uh, in 1927, a year after Everly Swim, flew uh, across the Atlantic um, in, the, uh, um, in his airplane. And uh, I think suddenly it was seen... Uh, what was possible with with a man and, and a machine and um, air travel? Then you had uh, um, traveling the uh, flying uh, flying around the world. Uh, Amy Johnson, Amelia Earhart, and uh, I mean, of course, you had um, space travel starting in in nineteen fifties. And I think that with the discovery of the South Pole, the North Pole. Um, you, you still had Everest, which was climbed in, in 1953, but I think it's uh, um, just um, almost, if you like, channel swimming, just um, specifically referring to channel swimming, suddenly became 
I mean, if you like, unsexy, unglamorous, because there was no machine involved and it was old fashioned and you know, it was all a bit sort of 19th century, if you like, whereas Charles Lindbergh was a future and suddenly this whole new world opened up for us. And, and I think that energies were, were perhaps channeled in, a, in, in another direction. And, um, and, but also you had the rise of professional sports. So, you know, baseball, soccer, um, um, football and um, track and field, the Olympics became bigger and bigger, more commercial. So I think that um, I think all those factors combined really uh, um, uh, helped diminish um, channel swimming, certainly, because it's, I mean, people still swim the channel today. A lot of Americans still swim the channel today, but it's, you know, it's more just for the, uh, you know, still a very good achievement, but it's, uh, there's no media circus now the way there was in 1926. Yeah. So do you think, is there any um, um, athletic feat that could today gain the kind of attention that a channel swim gained back in the early 20th century? Well, funny enough, I've been reading recently over will um, will anyone run a sub two hour marathon? Um, and so I suppose that's it's. Um, and of course, you've had Usain Bolt, his extraordinary uh, lowering of a hundred meter record. So I think um, I think perhaps the, the two hour marathon, in the way that the, the four minute yeah, miles. Yeah. Uh, was a was a was an extraordinary achievement. Um, but no, I mean I think really that uh, uh, the um, it, you know sort of the day of those great. I think we're just so obsessed now, aren't we? In you know in 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 in, in England, for example, it's soccer. In the NFL, for example, in in uh, in the states, we're so obsessed with with these huge multi million pound team sports now that really the um, the individual achievements have gained. Uh, 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 less and less significance. So we're almost out of time, but before I finish, uh, I'd like to ask you about your style, the style of your writing, which I, I really enjoyed. And uh, I've done research in the past in, in sports pages of the 1920s. And it, and it looked to me that your writing uh, was, uh, and I'm asking if you did it consciously was, was colored a bit by your source material by, by these newspapers from the 1920s. Was that accurate? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I suppose, uh, not, not consciously, no, but I'm sure sub- subconsciously, yes, uh, Bruce, because um, I have to say here that I, uh, uh, even though I'm a, I'm a proud Englishman, I do love uh, American sports writing. It's just got more colour to it. I think the British sports writing is, is more conservative. And so uh, and in the 1920s, it was, uh, as I said, I mentioned earlier, Westbrook Pegler, who, who was very... Um, pithy and, and, and very uh, didn't, didn't, didn't mince his words. And so I suppose it's sort of having, you know, having spent, uh, I spent three weeks in, uh, in the States researching uh, the article and I had my head buried in just about every American newspaper possible. I suppose you just absorb it and it's there. And so when I was writing it, because, the, because I was so, I mean, it was a wonderful story to write. Possibly my favourite favorite book of all the books I've written because of the characters and because I love the 1920s, the, the whole jazz era, the, you know, the, the Hollywood, the, the beginning of the, of the, of the talkie films, um, that it just sort of came out and, uh, and it was unstoppable. <laughs> so, so you mentioned, and I was actually going to ask that, so that, type, that style of, of sports writing, uh, that very vivid, colourful, romantic style, that was not something that you see in, 
in British newspapers in the 20s then? Oh, goodness me, no. Oh, no, really? no. Okay. Oh, no. They were very, uh, they were very, um, well, well, a bit like, you know, if you, uh, if you imagine uh, those sort of uh, 1920s, 30s Hollywood films you see of what life in life was Britain, very stuffy, very, uh, very um, not at all, very conservative, um, and uh, just really, I suppose, reporting the, reporting the facts without recourse to spicing it up in any way. So I'll ask uh, to finish, what's your new project? What are you working on now, or can you tell us? Uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually working on a, uh, um, a book about a, a chap called Ralph um, Bagnold, who was a desert explorer. Is uh, a, uh, a British man who, in the 1920s, again, what I said right at the beginning, an uh, ordinary man doing an extraordinary thing, was um, took an old Ford um, car off to uh, the Libyan desert and became the first um, white man to explore the interior of, uh, of the uh, Libyan desert and um, with some uh, other eccentric Englishmen. And uh, I mean, later, when the Second World War started, he formed uh, what was the, the called the Long Range Desert Group, which was a uh, reconnaissance group that uh, went deep behind German lines and uh, gaining information on, uh, on on German convoys, etc. And and, uh, and uh, which has proved a, a very important factor in Britain and uh, winning the uh, war in North Africa. So uh, so yeah, I mean, similar to what we uh, what what you know, continuing the theme, if you like, of of, of these wonderful men who. Um, just do wonderful things. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, so I'll finish by saying once again, I uh, I really enjoyed this book, and and to listeners, I'll say, contrary to what uh, what editors had said when seeing your project, this is not just a book about swimming. It's it's really a rich book, and and uh, uh, I really enjoyed how you put each of these characters. I know we talked mostly about Ederly, but uh, you really describe each of these characters, these women attempting to make this crossing very well, and, and they really come to life. And as I said, I, I think it's a compliment to say that there were chapters that were true page-turners. I, I really enjoyed it. So so thank you, Gavin, for, for coming on New Books and Sports. Thank you for having me, Bruce. It's been good to talk to you, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book so much. And I, I certainly enjoyed, enjoyed writing it and, uh, and enjoyed, I suppose, putting doing justice to Gertrude Edley, who was a wonderful woman. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Gavin Mortimer about his book, The Great Swim, published by Walker Books. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. If you enjoyed the interview, please visit the Facebook page for New Books in Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.